You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Military historians sometimes like to talk about a dichotomy. Uh, especially in the context of the American Civil War. On one side are the professional uh, warfighters, the guys who have genuine military training and, and, and bona fide experience. And on the other side are the, the political generals, the guys who receive commissions at, at a high rank due to the, the political capital and the connections that they, that they bring to the table. And, you know, on the professional side, you could, you could maybe add a kind of a, a sub, uh, sub-dichotomy, uh, assuming that is, uh, in fact, a word, um, between the officers who are the successful, you know, peacetime organizers and, and uh, networks versus the, the less, uh, less polished uh, soldiers who, you know, maybe struggle with the, the political part, but they know how to get the job done uh, on the battlefield where it counts. You know, that would be basically McClellan uh, versus Grant. Now, the, uh, the way it usually, but not always, uh, the way it usually goes is that as the war progresses, the more politically oriented commanders are, are gradually exposed and they make way for the, the natural soldiers. There's a weeding out period to separate the wheat from the chaff as the military becomes uh, more purely meritocratic, concerned more with the, the measurable uh, strategic effectiveness under the stress of, of real conflict. Now, in all fairness, we're probably talking about more of a spectrum rather than, than strict categories. And, and of course, it's not an iron rule. There are certainly counterexamples of men with little military training or experience who get a high commission based on their political connections or their social status, and then they end up doing a solid job. You know, Nathan Bedford Forrest would be the, uh, the obvious example. And there are others who have the training and they have the experience and they maybe even, maybe even look the part, but for whatever reason, they just don't perform well. And so maybe that's uh, Braxton Bragg or uh, Irvin McDowell, though both of those guys have their defenders. So the political versus professional distinction it existed on both sides, but it was more pronounced for the North, probably because the Confederates had less of an officer shortage early on. The situation would sometimes lead to predictable friction and even resentment. You know, you can imagine a, a West Pointer who's got combat experience in Mexico, we'll say. He might get a little frustrated if he was outranked on the battlefield by a politician who was a military novice. Now, as you probably guessed, 
the political versus professional dichotomy is, is going to be uh, sort of the theme of our Red River campaign episode. So uh, to kind of establish that background, we're going to take a short look at some of the better known political generals and how, how they actually performed. Benjamin Butler, for example, is, is one of the, the most well-known of the political generals. Uh, Butler was a, he was a big player in Massachusetts um, and Democratic Party politics before the war, who, believe it or not, had campaigned for Jefferson Davis as the 1860 Democratic nominee prior to the party split. Butler commissioned as a brigadier, and, and he made it to Major General. Early on, there was some concern about his pre-war politics and, and sympathies uh, with the southern states, but uh, his, his politics evolved during the war, and he turned into a favorite of the faction known as the Radical Republicans. Butler was reasonably effective in more politically-oriented early assignments in Maryland, and then as the uh, military governor of New Orleans, and then a, a peacekeeping post in New York City. Butler had lost his, his gig in New Orleans because his treatment of civilians there uh, drew some intense criticism from the press in the North, uh, South, and in Europe. And he also lost some favor with the Lincoln administration over some less than complimentary statements that uh, he had made about the uh, Jewish population of New Orleans which ended up in the press. Uh, it wasn't until 1864, when Butler received command of the Army of the James, that his inadequacy as a commander in the field was exposed. Butler's indecision and poor positioning of his men allowed Confederate General Beauregard to bottle up and neutralize the Army of the James before it could seriously threaten Richmond, which deprived Grant of an asset that could have helped capture Richmond much sooner. Now, an interesting bit of trivia about Butler is that running as the Democrat candidate, he lost the 1860 race for Massachusetts governor to the Republican nominee, Nathaniel Banks. And Butler was also relieved of his post as the military administrator in New Orleans by the same Nathaniel Banks, who incidentally is the, uh, the star of our show today. Now, another good example of a political general is John McClernand. Uh, who was an Illinois congressman and good friend of Abraham Lincoln, who also commissioned as a brigadier and then was promoted to major general. McClernand was one of uh, Grant's corps commanders in the Vicksburg campaign, and during that campaign, he lobbied the Lincoln administration to remove Grant in favor of McClernand himself. McClernand's maneuvering against Grant included, you know, among other things, uh, spreading false or at least seriously exaggerated rumors that Grant had spent a lot of the campaign drunk. McClernand also drove Grant crazy by circumventing the command structure to offer critiques of other generals to his friends in Washington. Eventually, Grant was able to get rid of General McClernand, aided by a removal recommendation from Admiral David Dixon Porter, who also plays a big part in uh, Red River Campaign. Another uh, political general from the North with a, a subpar track record is Daniel Sickles. Sickles came from a rich, politically connected New York family, and before the war, he had served two terms in Congress. Sickles received a commission when the war started and was a highly effective recruiter, and he performed adequately during the Peninsula Campaign. Now, Sickles' big blunder came at Gettysburg, and it cost him his command. 
General Meade ordered Sickles to position his corps along Cemetery Ridge, ending at Little Round Top. Sickles apparently thought that the Peach Orchard offered a better position, so he moved his men there, which left Little Round Top undefended and caused a significant weakness in the Union line. A wound that Sickles sustained during the battle provided ample justification for reassigning command of the Corps, and Sickles was not given another command uh, when he returned. He spent a lot of his energy for the rest of his life trying to convince the world that it was actually General George Meade who, who had made the big mistake at Gettysburg, and Sickles' quick thinking bailed Meade out and saved the day. And there's a couple historians who um, have agreed with Sickles' argument, but it's definitely the minority position. Now, setting aside Gettysburg, Sickles may be best known for a non-military incident from before the war. That came in 1859 when Congressman Sickles whacked the U.S. attorney with whom his wife was having an affair. The shooting occurred during the middle of the day in Lafayette Square, right by the White House. So it drew a lot of attention. And Sickles' trial resulted in the first successful use of the temporary insanity defense in U.S. legal history. And one last Union political general worth mentioning is Franz Siegel, although he wasn't really a politician. Now, Siegel was a leader in the German immigrant community, having served as an officer in the uh, Revolutionary Army in Germany that came out on the wrong side in 1848. And Siegel was immensely popular with the German soldiers, but unfortunately, he was below average in the field. Siegel eventually lost his command not long after his loss to a Confederate political general, John Breckinridge, at the Battle of Newmarket, famous for the participation of teenage cadets from the Virginia Military Institute. Notwithstanding his shortcomings as a tactical commander, Franz Siegel made a large contribution to the war effort as a recruiter. Uh, Lincoln was uh, generally shrewd enough to recognize that a political general's value went beyond uh, military leadership. Popular and well-known military leaders help rally ever-important public support, even if they don't necessarily succeed on the battlefield. And as we noted a couple times, political generals were some of the most effective recruiters, which helped many to get their high ranks early on. Now, in all fairness to the Union's political generals, we should mention that there, there were some who did, who did pretty well as commanders. Francis Blair Jr., a Kentucky-born Missouri congressman from a famous political family with ties to Lincoln, was one of the, the most successful. His brother, Montgomery Blair, was Lincoln's postmaster general, and his father, also called Francis Blair, was a former Jacksonian Democrat who helped launch the Republican Party and acted as a close advisor to President Lincoln. So, you know, Blair is about as politically connected as it gets. Blair started as a colonel of Missouri Volunteers and by August 1862 had worked his way up to Major General. He was a successful division commander under Grant and then a corps commander under Sherman in the Atlanta campaign. General Blair's only major error didn't occur on the battlefield. He took a leave of absence from the army to campaign for Lincoln's uh, 1864 re-election, and that garnered some resentment from the soldiers under his command and some criticism from West Pointers, who shook their heads at the politicians' lack of commitment to his men in the field. And one other good one was John Logan, an Illinois congressman who started as a colonel 
and after successful runs as a brigade and then division commander under Grant, was promoted to major general at the start of 1863. Logan acted as Vicksburg's military administrator. He had another successful run as a corps commander under Sherman, and for a very brief period after the death of General James McPherson, Congressman Logan, who um, had actually resigned from Congress by that point, he held command of the Army of the Tennessee. However, Sherman's nerves just couldn't handle a, a non-professional in command of an entire army, so he, he replaced Logan with General Oliver Howard soon after. Sherman did, though, have enough confidence in General John Logan to give him another corps command, and Grant had already dispatched Logan to relieve George Thomas when word arrived uh, of Thomas's Nashville victory over John Bell Hood. So he had Grant's confidence, which uh, says a lot. Okay, that was our uh, general survey of uh, Union political generals. So we can now proceed to our case study, a man who uh, just might be the quintessential political general. And he also happens to be one of the main characters in this episode's uh, topic, the Red River Campaign. And I am, of course, talking about Union General Nathaniel Prentice Banks. Before the war, Banks, who was a Massachusetts native, he had been a very high-profile figure in national politics, highlighted by stints as uh, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and as Governor of Massachusetts. The Speaker position technically made Banks fourth, rather than third, in line for the presidency because the original Presidential Succession Act placed the president pro tem of the Senate third, followed by the Speaker. The uh, more recent act switched the positions of those two offices. Still, Speaker of the House is a very high office, so it's, it's pretty noteworthy that Banks went from that position to a, a military command. I don't really anticipate that Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi is going to take a command of an army division fighting, you know, fighting the Ruskies or whatever. But never say never, right? Union leadership in Washington was well aware of the potential pitfalls of appointing military officers to center stage positions based on political connections and name recognition. For example, General Henry Halleck, uh, for one, who was one of Lincoln's top military advisors, he recognized that you know, men without the training or experience were a lot less likely to be competent in the field. After all, if you can expect a governor or senator to jump right into a military command and do just as well as a West Pointer, then what is the point of West Point? Nonetheless, Washington also recognized that non-military considerations sometimes uh, made it a necessary evil. A couple years uh, into the war, Halleck, who was by that point in the role of chief of staff, wrote, quote, It seems but little better than murder to give important commands to such a man as Nathaniel Banks, Benjamin Butler, John McClernand, Franz Siegel, and Lew Wallace. And yet, it seems impossible to prevent it, end quote. By the spring of 1864, right around the time of Halleck's observation, Speaker-turned-Governor-turned-General Nathaniel Banks was in command of the New Orleans-headquartered Department of the Gulf. But he had his eyes on even loftier ground. President Lincoln was viewed as vulnerable in the upcoming 1864 election, and Banks, who was a prominent Republican, 
had top-tier connections in the party, and had enjoyed some early support for the 1860 nomination before criticism from hardliners inhibited his candidacy. Now, going into 1864, there were some powerful New England money men close to Banks who were ready to back a challenger with a realistic shot of unseating Lincoln as the Republican Party's nominee. Thus, at least from Nathaniel Banks's point of view, a successful military campaign in Louisiana had potential political ramifications if it sufficiently raised Banks's profile to serve as a springboard for a primary challenge. Well, they didn't exactly have primaries back then, but it's the, the same idea. Banks was about to embark on just such a military campaign. President Lincoln and Army Chief of Staff Henry Halleck wanted a big Union advance to challenge rebel control of northern Louisiana in East Texas. Nathaniel Banks got the job leading what came to be known as the Red River Campaign. Now, despite a so-so record thus far, Banks had managed to hang on as a major general all the way to the spring of 1864. Unfortunately for his political ambitions, though, that was when Nathaniel Banks, like John McClernand and Daniel Sickles, and not long after that, Ben Butler, was exposed as a military amateur. Now, the Red River Campaign was what strategists call a combined arms operation, with the U.S. Army and Navy working in tandem, and it ended up being the Civil War's largest. One of the reasons that this campaign is a good case study for the uh, uh, political versus professional officer dichotomy that we mentioned in the introduction is that General Banks's counterpart on the Navy side, Admiral David Dixon Porter, was as authentic of a professional military man as you could get, with decades of experience already behind him. The Red River Campaign lasted from early March 1864 through mid-May. The 30,000 Union soldiers involved in the campaign doubled the Confederate opposition, but the difficult and unusual topography of the Louisiana Bayou enhanced the rebels' natural advantage as defenders. And on top of that, uh, General Banks was frankly outmatched by the opposing rebel commander, General Richard Taylor. Interestingly enough, though, um, you could also call Richard Taylor a political general. But if anything, he's the uh, counterexample if you want to argue that sometimes uh, political generals work out just fine. And Taylor's boss, Confederate General Kirby Smith, was a West Pointer uh, and an experienced officer with a less than stellar track record in the Civil War. When all was said and done, the Red River Campaign would end up looking more like a Union defeat than a Confederate victory. Nothing seemed to go right for the Federals, and uh, Nathaniel Banks made several key blunders. Not only did the campaign not advance Banks's political ambitions, it did serious damage to his reputation, forestalling uh, any prospect at all of a successful run for the presidency, which, uh, going into 1864, had, had looked like a real possibility. Now, disaster might be too strong a word, because it, it, could, have, it could have been worse, but debacle gets used a lot in accounts of the Red River campaign, so you know, we'll go with that. Or to quote the U.S. Army War College's uh, take on the 1864 campaign into northern Louisiana, quote, 
In the end, the campaign failed to accomplish a single objective due to poor planning and mismanagement. It had been dictated by political agendas and party politics, as well as commercial interests. Its failure led to a congressional investigation. Sherman called the campaign one damn blunder from beginning to end. Okay, welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray uh, Civil War Podcast. This is part one of our episode on the Red River Campaign, which, although it um, didn't have a huge strategic impact, it's one that's sometimes overlooked in terms of uh, interestingness. And the reason I say that is that the campaign stands out for the extended cooperation between the Union Army and Navy, and also because of the geographic setting. Uh, We're staying west of the Mississippi, mostly discussing events in, in Louisiana this time out. And Louisiana is one of the most unique states culturally and, and also has the, the distinctive bayou terrain that, uh, that Credence uh, set to music so well. So if, if Born on the Bayou pops into your head at times during this episode, um, just know that you're not alone. This is going to be a two-parter, and the idea is that part one is going to set everything up for part two, which will present more of a play-by-play of the campaign itself. Uh, most of the research for part two is already done, so the um, you know the thrilling conclusion should follow uh, with a relatively um, shorter turnaround time. Before commencing the ceremonies, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, if you'd like to reach out uh, about the podcast or otherwise, the show email is blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, spelling gray with an E. And I guess that'll do it for the intro. I hope you enjoy the Red River Campaign. It's a little tricky to pin down uh, precisely where the Red River campaign fits into the, the greater context of, of the Civil War. Now, for starters, we're, we're still talking about the Trans-Mississippi Theater, which um, is important and, and interesting, but, you know, it's not, like, really the main event in, in most tellings of the story. Chronology-wise, where we are is that Sherman has, has turned his attention eastward toward Atlanta, and, and Grant is in Virginia by this point. So the, um, the action in, in Louisiana is, is somewhat isolated. The Red River Campaign is often called the last major Union campaign in the Trans-Mississippi. Confederate General Sterling Price would make one last-ditch effort in Missouri a few months later, but, but Union efforts were mostly limited to mop-up duty going forward. Calling uh, Red River major kind of depends on, on how you define major. Like we mentioned last time out, the, the numbers involved in the, the big eastern theater battles dwarf most of the trans-Mississippi action, uh, so it's all relative. For example, there were about 30,000 Federals committed to the Red River campaign. Sherman's army took about that many casualties in the campaign for Atlanta, which occurred around the same time. And Sherman was commanding nearly four times as many soldiers. And Lee had around 60,000 to defend Richmond uh, against twice as many Yankees under Generals Grant and Meade during the same spring of 1864 in the Overland Campaign. 
And by comparison, there were only about 10,000 rebels defending the Red River. But again, it's all, it's all relative. There were very few, if any, trans-Mississippi campaigns with greater forces in opposition than in the Red River. I think Pea Ridge, um, also known as Elkhorn Tavern, and uh, Westport, which was the culmination of the, the, um, you know, the aforementioned Sterling Price-led uh, uh, venture into Missouri, Pea Ridge and Westport had comparable numbers, but you know, for the most part, um, you don't get much bigger than the Red River campaign in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Now, you can also call the Red River the, the last major campaign where the Confederates came out on top. But it was sort of the equivalent of a fourth-quarter touchdown um, scored by a team that's already four touchdowns behind. It could have potentially been a, a, you know, a nice morale boost for the Rebels, but with the way things played out, there was disappointment and finger-pointing on the Confederate side, too. The other side of the coin, for the Union, it was a defeat. But it wasn't really a defeat that damaged their position. It maybe extended the fighting a little longer and kept more geography under rebel control deeper into the war, but it didn't really change either side's uh, chances of winning. It wasn't necessarily apparent to the public yet, but by spring 1864, the... um, the big picture had changed significantly with the pivotal Union victories at, at Gettysburg and, and, and Vicksburg the um, summer before, and with the ever-worsening Confederate shortages in manpower, munitions, and food, Union victory had, had become less of an if and more of a when. Uh, European intervention was no longer realistic, so the Confederacy's best shot was to hope for a negotiated peace following a Lincoln loss in the 1864 election. By spring of 1864, Ulysses Grant had established himself as Lincoln's go-to guy, and he'd been promoted to overall command of all Union forces, the the highest-ranking American general since George Washington. Grant was looking to score a decisive knockout blow to end the fighting as quickly as possible, and his plan for that was to launch a massive five-prong assault against strategically significant targets throughout the entire Confederacy. The idea was that if, if, um, if everyone moved at the same time, the Confederates couldn't redeploy men from hot areas to cold areas. The, the rebels, um, they were using their troop movements uh, across interior lines to, to partially make up for the Union's vast numerical superiority, and Grant wanted to neutralize that advantage. Each of the five targets that Grant selected, with Sherman's help, uh, was itself important. But Grant also wanted the assaults to force the Confederate field armies to give battle, and in the process lose men and munitions faster than they could be replaced. Two of the simultaneous operations would both move against Richmond. The first, and most well-known, Um, which was spearheaded by the Army of the Potomac under Grant's observation and General George Meade's direct command, uh, was to attack Lee's Army of Northern Virginia from the northeast in what's known as the Overland Campaign. The second, a smaller Army of the James under former New Orleans administrator and political general Ben Butler, approached Richmond from a different angle, approaching the, the capital city's underbelly, from the southeast via the James River and uh, the same 
Virginia Peninsula that George McClellan had had campaigned uh, against two years earlier. With Lee forced to defend Richmond, another Union army could run rampant through the Shenandoah Valley, destroying the food production that was feeding Richmond and was also feeding General Lee's army. Uh, While all that was going on in Virginia, Sherman's western forces would move against Atlanta, considered the South's uh, second most important city. And the fifth prong, which was to be led by General Nathaniel Banks, was an attack on not Louisiana, but Mobile, Alabama, a critical port in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, you probably notice that all that action uh, leaves something important out, the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Well, that's because the spring 1864 operations didn't go off how Grant had envisioned. The plan was approved, but General Henry Halleck, who you'll remember was um, Lincoln's military chief of staff and the former occupant of the general-in-chief position that was now held by Grant, uh, Halleck wanted to change one detail from Grant's plan. And Lincoln came down on Halleck's side. Rather than having Banks use the Union forces in and around New Orleans to move against Mobile, Halleck and Lincoln wanted General Banks, aided by a freshwater fleet under Admiral David Dixon Porter, to make their way up the Red River from the southeast to capture Shreveport, Louisiana. There were some political and strategic reasons for the change of plans, uh, which we'll go into later. But what we need to know for now is that Washington modified General Grant's original plan, which General Banks was fully on board with, and the result was a campaign up the Red River rather than against Mobile. So rather than discussing the Yellowhammer State, uh, Alabama, we'll be discussing Louisiana. And I confess I had to look up Louisiana's uh, state nickname, which, if you're wondering, is the Pelican State. Uh, I'm kind of ashamed I didn't know that because... As uh, state nicknames go, it's a a pretty good one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so the geography we're looking at is that the Red River empties uh, into the the mighty Mississippi in kind of the east-central part of Louisiana. If you can picture how Louisiana has sort of an L shape, at the corner of the L is where the Red River meets the Mississippi. The Mississippi River forms the border between Louisiana and, and the state of Mississippi, in the northern half of Louisiana. And then uh, from the the bend in the L, the Mississippi River runs south exclusively through Louisiana, moving toward Baton Rouge and New Orleans. So if you start where the Red River meets the Mississippi, which is the, like we said, the um, inside part of the the bend in the, the L, and you travel northwest up the winding Red River a couple hundred miles, you'll eventually arrive at Shreveport, Louisiana, the target of the campaign. And if you were to make that trip today, it would only take you about three hours if you uh, used Interstate 49. 
But needless to say, it was a lot more difficult in 1864 because uh, some of the terrain between the two is bayou. Bayou, according to the National Geographic Society, is, quote, a slow-moving creek or a swampy section of a river or a lake. They are usually found in flat areas where water collects in pools. Bayous are usually shallow and sometimes heavily wooded, end quote. Not necessarily the, uh, the optimum place for a Union army, but, you know, if you're going to launch a campaign into the heart of Louisiana, uh, it's going to be a little tough to avoid. Louisiana had been in the first wave of secession, declaring itself no longer part of the Union on January 26, 1861. There was a, a sizable part of the state's population that was, in fact, pro-Union, but the wealthy planters who dominated Louisiana politics favored secession. With Lincoln's election, Louisiana Governor Thomas Overton Moore ordered the seizure of military installations in the state and staged a convention that omitted areas that were sympathetic to the Union, uh, ignoring the inconvenient constitutional provisions that would have required a popular vote. By the time anyone had the opportunity to formally object to the, the legal irregularities, Louisiana's secession was a fait accompli. At the time of the war, New Orleans had the largest population of any city in the Confederate States. Its prime location at the mouth of the Mississippi River made it a vital commercial center. Much of the um, cotton, sugar, and tobacco uh, that were produced on the southern plantations was brought to market um, in and through New Orleans, and the city was also the, uh, the epicenter of the American slave trade. In wartime, New Orleans became an important strategic asset, uh, allowing access to the Gulf of Mexico and controlling access to the Mississippi River. The British attempted to take New Orleans in the final days of the War of 1812, and the Union Army made the capture of New Orleans one of its top priorities in the early days of the Civil War. The city uh, also acted as a sort of regional focal point for recruitment, and for distribution of um, weapons and provisions for the Confederate Army. And it also had one of the Confederacy's few shipworks um, that was capable of uh, building a competitive warship. Um, so the fall of New Orleans would be a big loss for the South and a big win for the North. Now, the Gulf and river access that made New Orleans thrive commercially also made the city nearly impossible to defend. And considering the city's importance to the Southern War effort, Confederate military leaders placed little emphasis on defending it. The bulk of Louisiana's recruits were sent to fight in other states. The uh, famous Louisiana Tigers, for example, spent most of their career in the Army of Northern Virginia. Another uh, well-known Louisiana volunteer regiment, the Louisiana Native Guard, consisted entirely of free black men from New Orleans. Louisiana administrators assigned the Native Guard to, the, uh, to New Orleans' uh, undermanned defenses. Now, the city of New Orleans' uh, defense was, was built around two forts, Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip, positioned on opposite sides of the river. Both of those forts were constructed of stone and brick uh, before the war and were outfitted with numerous heavy guns. And there were also several smaller artillery installations designed to complement the forts. Uh, Louisiana's governor made several requests to, um, to Richmond to strengthen the city's defenses uh, without success. The Union's West Gulf Blockading Squadron in April of 1862 
uh, commanded by Captain David Farragut and supported by Commander David Dixon Porter, prepared for an attack on New Orleans by steaming up the Mississippi River. Farragut brought with him four large, heavily armed ships capable of navigating on the river, along with about 40 smaller gunboats and support ships. Beginning on April 18th, uh, 1862, and continuing for five days, the squadron exchanged fire with the forts and the improvised Confederate gunships protecting the river. Then a nighttime mission to blow a hole in a river barricade was successful, and the following day, the squadron fought its way through a hailstorm of artillery fire to run the forts. The successful run of Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip put Farragut's squadron between New Orleans and the forts protecting it. Shortly after, the citizens of New Orleans learned that the city's defenses had failed, and a Yankee occupation force was on the way. To prevent valuable assets falling into enemy hands, residents started a massive fire at the city wharf that consumed almost 30,000 cotton bales, along with a host of sugar, tobacco, molasses, and other products uh, set for export. New Orleans fell firmly into Union hands on April 25, 1862, with no significant fighting on land. Union Major General Benjamin Butler was appointed as the city administrator, and he imposed martial law. Butler, who came to be known among Southerners as the Beast, which kind of sounds cool by today's standards, Butler became one of the most hated men in the Confederacy. Among other things, he allowed Union soldiers to plunder valuables from New Orleans residences, and he entered, gen and he entered General Order Number 28 that authorized Union troops to treat women who did not show sufficient respect uh, for the Union as prostitutes. Now, that obviously didn't go over well in the South, but it also drew intense criticism in the North and condemnation from Europe, which uh, is what eventually led to Butler's removal in favor of General Nathaniel Banks at the end of 1862. Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana state capital, fell to Union forces less than two weeks after New Orleans. There was a, a failed attempt to recapture the capital in August, um, a temporary abandonment by Union forces shortly after, and then from December 1862 on, Baton Rouge was under firm Union control and the Capitol building was burned along with much of the state archives. While he was in charge, General Butler was also able to secure Union control uh, of a good chunk of southeastern Louisiana, and the Union victories following the sieges of Vicksburg, Mississippi, and Port Hudson, Louisiana, uh, put the big river in Union hands in July 1863. However, the central and western parts of Louisiana centered around the new capital in uh, Shreveport, stayed frustratingly in rebel hands and remained important to the Southern war effort. One of the, uh, the interesting results uh, of the early capture of New Orleans and, and the surrounding areas was that while the war was still ongoing, Louisiana, or at least the parts that were under Union control, was readmitted into the Union and allowed representation in Congress. As a result, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't technically cover New Orleans uh, or the 13 uh, parishes, the Louisiana equivalent of counties, that were under Union control. And for a couple of years, there were two governors of Louisiana, 
uh, Thomas Overton Moore, who we mentioned earlier, he was the, the Confederate governor, and Union Governor George Shepley, um, who was later succeeded by Michael Hahn. As he prepared to lead the Union Army uh, on the Red River Campaign, General Nathaniel Banks' primary objective was to capture the alternate state capital of Shreveport. Shreveport was serving both as the state's uh, seat of government and also as the chief base of operations for Confederate forces west of the Mississippi. The city of Shreveport rests along the Red River in northwestern Louisiana, a little under 20 miles from the Texas border to the west and about twice that from the Arkansas border to the north. Now, Shreveport was an attractive target for a few reasons. Um, The Confederates had set up a, a sort of defense production area in and around Shreveport, stretching into East Texas and also southwest Arkansas, with ironworks and munitions and even some shipbuilding facilities. Shreveport was the hub, so capturing Shreveport would help neutralize more of what little production the South could still muster. Another objective of the campaign was in line with General Grant's strategy shift uh, toward a war of attrition. The Union Army wanted to force the Confederates in Louisiana to give battle, and threatening Shreveport was a a pretty good way to do that. And if if Banks could severely damage the Confederate Army defending the uh, East Texas, Western Louisiana, Southern Arkansas area, he could pave the way for long-term Union occupation, like in New Orleans and Memphis and, more recently, Little Rock, Arkansas. Every portion of formerly Confederate territory occupied by Union troops hurt Southern morale and led to further resource shortages, and if things went really well, might further facilitate pro-Union state governments in Confederate states. What might have made Shreveport the most attractive from uh, the point of view of the folks in Washington was that it was an ideal jumping-off point for an invasion of East Texas, which the Lincoln administration viewed as a high priority. The fall of Vicksburg the summer before had effectively severed the western and eastern halves of the Confederacy. The fall of Shreveport, followed by a successful invasion of East Texas, would cut off Texas from the rest of the Confederate West, and that would, in turn, further deprive the Confederacy of material wealth from Texas and what could be smuggled in from Mexico and hinder reinforcement of the rest of Texas should the Federal War Department decide to make a play for control of the entire Lone Star State. And uh, an ancillary benefit of establishing a firm federal foothold in Texas was that by demonstrating that Washington could still project military strength into Texas, the Lincoln administration would signal to the French that they hadn't forgotten about France's imperial designs in Mexico. Now, by the spring of 1864, the Federal Army had, had already made a few attempts to, um, to establish a presence in, in East Texas, notably including the September 1863 Battle of Sabine Pass, which I've also heard pronounced Sabine Pass or Sabine Pass. Uh, anybody from down around there wants to let me know which way to do it, uh, feel free to email the show. Uh, for now, though, we'll go with Sabine Pass. Okay, Sabine Pass was the culmination of a combined arms operation designed by General Nathaniel Banks, who, of course, would also lead the Union Army's portion of the combined arms campaign up the Red River. 
Banks's plan uh, leading up to Sabine Pass was to deploy 4,000 Union soldiers under General William Franklin via transports from New Orleans. The transports would land near where the Sabine River empties into Sabine Lake and then the Gulf of Mexico on the Texas-Louisiana border. Establishing a beachhead uh, at the mouth of the river would allow the Federals access to Houston via a rail line uh, connecting Confederate Fort Griffin, which protected Sabine Pass, and Houston. After taking Houston, they'd have ready access to uh, the heart of Texas. Four heavily armed gunboats were given a temporary break from, from blockading duty to shield the Army's landing. The plan was for the gunboats to enter the pass and take out the Confederate artillery um, at Fort Griffin. And with those guns silenced, the landing force would have more or less unimpeded access to the shore. Fort Griffin had only six artillery pieces to defend the pass, but the Irish-Texan Jeff Davis Guard, occupying the fort, had spent months honing their skill with those guns and placing range markers throughout the, the river mouth in preparation for pretty much exactly the kind of Union operation um, that Banks had planned. The river mouth was um, effectively divided into two channels, the Texas Channel to the west and the Louisiana Channel to the east, uh, divided into two channels by a large oyster reef in the middle. Fort Griffin's cannoneers had been practicing and marking their range to target ships on either or both channels. The attack on Fort Griffin, uh, and with it the Battle of Sabine Pass, began on the morning of September 8, 1863, with the Union gunboats delivering a relatively ineffective long-range bombardment. They were outside of the effective range of the less state-of-the-art Confederate guns, so there was no return fire to speak of but the gunboat's long-range fire didn't really do any damage. Then in the afternoon, the four Union gunboats entered Sabine Pass, two in each channel. In doing so, they entered the range of the Confederate guns. The rebel gunners scored an early direct hit on the Sockham, the uh, lead boat in the Louisiana Channel, which disabled that boat and obstructed the gunboat following behind it, the Arizona forcing it to turn around and withdraw out of range. On the Texas side, a rebel shell took out the steering mechanism of another gunboat, the Clifton, which ran aground, where it sustained heavy fire until the crew had to abandon ship. And the fourth Union gunboat, the Granite City, withdrew upon seeing the accurate fire from the rebels uh, that knocked out the Clifton and the Sockham after only a few minutes of fighting. The Battle of Sabine Pass took less than an hour. The Union transports were never able to land. The rebels took zero casualties and captured two Union gunboats, helping themselves to the cannons on board. Not only did General Banks' plan to begin an invasion of East Texas uh, fail, Sabine Pass is generally considered one of, uh, if not the, most lopsided rebel victories of the entire conflict. Uh, as an interesting side note, uh, before we move on, of the four Union uh, gunboats that, that steamed into Sabine Pass to, con to confront Fort Griffin's guns, only the Granite City took no damage. Um, after starting the, the war as a uh, Confederate blockade runner, the Granite City had been captured by a Union warship in the Bahamas 
in early 1863, where it was outfitted with uh, you know, you know, firepower worthy of a, a federal gunboat and put to work in the Gulf blockade. So the um, Granite City spent part of the war running the blockade and uh, another part enforcing it. It escaped Sabine Pass unscathed, only to be recaptured by the Confederates in April 1864. The uh, recapture occurred on the Louisiana Gulf Coast while the Red River campaign was underway. But, but it wasn't directly uh, connected to the campaign. Okay, speaking uh, of the Red River campaign uh, in 1864, when you consider uh, General Nathaniel Banks's less-than-stellar track record, you might think that it might have been a better pick um, to lead the campaign up the Red River. And in fact, General Sherman uh, seems like uh, the obvious pick to command an operation against Shreveport. Sherman had a much better record, and he was uh, very familiar with Louisiana, having served as superintendent of the Louisiana Military Academy. Ultimately, though, uh, Grant nixed the idea of Sherman taking the lead, and it obviously wasn't because Grant didn't think um, Sherman was up to it. It was because Grant viewed Sherman as, as the Union's top commander. You know, you can imagine that uh, uh, the scene from the, the 1989 Batman where, where Jack Palance as Boss Grissom, uh, says to uh, future Joker Jack Napier, Jack Nicholson, of course, you are my number one. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's Grant talking to Sherman. Yeah, it might be too much of a stretch, uh, especially since uh, Boss Grissom was, was, uh, was setting up uh, the Joker. But uh, the point is that Grant wanted Sherman leading the more important campaign uh, against Atlanta you know, before knocking off the Acme chemical plant. So the Red River campaign was stuck with the, um, the less experienced political general, Nathaniel Banks. Banks's operation would be supported by the Union Freshwater Navy under Admiral David Dixon Porter, who was a much more seasoned officer than was Banks. Uh, Porter was an enthusiastic supporter of the idea when it was initially pitched to him as a William Tecumseh Sherman-led venture. He became much less eager when he learned that it was, in fact, Nathaniel Banks uh, who'd be running the show on the, uh, on the Army side of, of the campaign. Porter had almost zero confidence in Banks as, as a military commander, expressing his expectation that uh, the Navy would get left high and dry at the first sign of substantial rebel resistance. It took Sherman assigning 10,000 experienced soldiers to protect Porter's fleet, operating separate from Banks under the command of uh, uh, Union General Andrew Jackson Smith. Uh, it took those 10,000 men to overcome Porter's reluctance. Now, the two Union commanders uh, we're talking about here, uh, Nathaniel Banks and David Dixon Porter, they paint about as stark of a contrast between, you know, the professional... Uh, experienced military man versus the the political officer, uh, as you're going to find. Of the four commanders at center stage in the Red River campaign, two on either side, Admiral David Dixon Porter was the oldest with the most service time. Uh, He came from one of the most distinguished families in the U.S. Navy history. And at uh, 50 years old when the campaign began, he already had considerable military experience under his belt. Uh, Porter's father, uh, Commodore David Porter, 
served in the U.S. Navy's series of naval fights with France at the very end of the 18th century. Uh, He saw action in Tripoli, and he commanded the USS Essex in the War of 1812, becoming one of the American heroes of the war for capturing a British warship and a host of British merchant ships before finally being himself captured when two British warships disabled the Essex off the coast of Chile. After the War of 1812, the elder David Porter uh, was given command of a squadron charged with catching Johnny Depp's pirate buddies in the Caribbean. The elder Porter was eventually forced to leave the U.S. Navy for an unsanctioned uh, incursion into Spanish territory, and he finished his career as commander of Mexico's Navy. That's right, he was pushed out of the U.S. Navy for an over-aggressive action, and so he got another gig commanding Mexico's Navy, which was apparently less uh, weird-sounding then than, than it sounds now. So uh, that's uh, David Porter the Elder, a well-known naval commander in his own right. Now, our guy, David Dixon Porter, was born in Pennsylvania in 1813, and he grew up in the same household with adopted brother David Farragut, who also became a, a well-known naval commander. Uh, David Dixon Porter started his career at just 13 years old, and his first gig was working alongside his father in the Mexican Navy uh, for a couple years before joining the U.S. Navy in 1829. Porter started the Civil War working with the blockade and, and then teamed up with foster brother David Farragut in the successful operation to capture New Orleans. Porter was put in charge of the Freshwater Navy's um, operations on the Mississippi soon after, which is uh, when he became friendly with U.S. Grant, notably assisting in the capture of Vicksburg. Porter's appointment to run the Mississippi Squadron resulted in his receiving a triple promotion to Rear Admiral from Commander, bypassing the ranks of Captain and Commodore. Uh, The promotion wasn't uh, quite as dramatic as it sounds, though. To make inter-service cooperation uh, run more smoothly, the, uh, the Navy had recently revamped its ranking structure so that the Army and Navy ranks would run more or less parallel. The idea was to make it easier for Army officers uh, to, to understand where their Navy counterparts kind of stood in the, um, the relative pecking order and uh, vice versa. At the beginning of the war, Captain had been the U.S. Navy's highest official rank, and there was no formal rank of Commodore or Admiral. Notably, the new structure was based on an order from the Secretary of the Navy and not on an act of Congress, so the new ranks were not technically permanent. Uh, After the war, Congress formally adopted the rank of Admiral, and Porter's adopted brother, David Farragut, was awarded that rank first, and Porter was uh, given the rank of Vice Admiral and then finally promoted to Admiral in 1870. Okay, so Porter is given command of the Freshwater Navy on the Mississippi, promoted to acting admiral, and befriends U.S. Grant. And from that position, we'll fast forward on his, uh, on his timeline uh, to the Red River campaign. It's not that big a jump uh, chronologically, but just know that Porter was a, a busy man, and he was mostly successful in between. Before continuing forward, it's worth noting a couple things about Porter's career after the Civil War. He was named superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy uh, almost immediately after the war ended. And in that role, uh, Porter gets a lot of credit for turning Annapolis into the first-rate institution that it became. 
Uh, the school had, had actually opened in 1845, but it had been mostly an afterthought behind the Army's much more prestigious school at West Point. Admiral Porter, though, had the, had the gravitas to spearhead a major overhaul of the Academy's curriculum and philosophy. And by all accounts, his changes uh, considerably improved Annapolis's effectiveness at producing uh, well-trained naval officers. And another thing to keep in the back of your, uh, your mind about Porter is that the back end of his career was impeded by his, his knack for, for getting on the wrong side of people that had political influence. Uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, um, for example, called Porter, quote, a gas bag blowing his own trumpet and stealing credit which belongs to others, end quote. Stanton was uh, kind of a jerk, and uh, he badmouthed people a lot. But, you know, he's not a guy you wanted as an enemy in the years after the war. Porter was still in his early 50s when the war ended, and he had a decent amount of uh, tread left on the tires. But after the stint with the Naval Academy and a brief period as an advisor under President Grant, Admiral Porter uh, was maneuvered out of influence, losing out to less talented but, but better liked and more politically uh, adept competitors. Porter's military reputation protected him from being dismissed outright, and he uh, continued to officially serve in the Navy until his death in 1891, which ended a remarkable 60-plus-year career. Uh, But he spent the the final 20 years or so uh, mostly on academic pursuits. Now, Admiral Porter made enemies because he had a reputation for, for being ambitious, sometimes to a fault, and prone to self-aggrandizement. Yeah, he was also known as a guy who, uh, who knew what he was doing, and, and he knew how to get things done, uh, someone who, who kept a cool head and uh, who worked well under pressure. That combination meant that in wartime, uh, David Dixon Porter was a, a very valuable asset. Uh, Sherman and Grant thought Porter was... Uh, uh, terrific. In peacetime, when bottom line results are you know, not necessarily uh, uh, the measure, uh, the politicians and the politically minded officers sidelined Porter. Edwin Stanton, and as it turned out, politician turned general, and eventually back to politician, Nathaniel Banks, thought that uh, Porter was an overrated braggart. The Lincoln administration's Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, who um, incidentally is probably the the record holder for the all-time um, coolest nickname for uh, cabinet secretaries, or at least for a Secretary of the Navy, they called him Father Neptune. Uh, Gideon Wells gave a pretty unbiased evaluation of Admiral Porter, noting both Porter's competence as an officer and his character imperfections a uh, mixture of good and bad traits, Wells called it. Uh, Navy Secretary Wells, Father Neptune, wrote of Commander David Dixon Porter when promoting him to admiral, quote, He has stirring and positive qualities, is fertile in resources, has great energy, excessive and not over-scrupulous ambition, is impressed with and boastful of his own powers, given to exaggeration in relation to himself, a Porter infirmity. Uh, Wells means that uh, the trait yeah, ran in the Porter family, is not generous to older and superior living officers, who he is too ready to traduce. Uh, traduce um, is a word you don't 
hear much anymore. And I had to look it up. It means um, like uh, to criticize or badmouth. Uh, okay, okay, turning back to Wells. But he is kind and patronizing to favorites who are juniors and generally to official inferiors. Is given to clickism, but is brave and daring like all his family. End quote. During the early spring of 1864, Admiral Porter assembled an imposing freshwater flotilla uh, for the campaign up the Red River to take Shreveport, Louisiana. Including support boats, there were 90 Union vessels, highlighted by heavy-armored ironclad gunboats, quicker, lighter-armored gunboats called tinclads, several rams, and a trifecta of imposing monitors equipped with rotating turrets that facilitated easier targeting of potential threats. With over 200 combined naval guns, Porter's flotilla, when concentrated, could dish out an overwhelming artillery barrage. Uh, The strength of the fleet was its tremendous firepower. If Porter's flotilla ran into any problems, it was not going to be because they failed to bring enough guns. The tricky part was going to be navigating the big heavy gunboats through the Red River serpentine bends and unpredictable depths. Porter was coming off a great deal of success on the Mississippi during campaigns against New Orleans, Fort Hindman, and Vicksburg. But the Red River, uh, compared to the Mississippi, is generally narrower and shallower. And uh, you can consider this foreshadowing or maybe a spoiler. Uh, One of the campaign's toughest obstacles was that they would discover that the water level was lower than average in the spring of 1864. Porter's counterpart running the uh, army side of things was the quintessential political general that we identified earlier as Nathaniel Prentice Banks. Now, I don't want to be you know, too harsh, but, but Banks is, is uh, completely Porter's opposite in terms of experience and capability versus political aptitude. Banks was a, an expert networker, and he really did excel at politics. Unfortunately, though, Banks was not a particularly competent military commander. He was 45 years old when the war began, and he had already had a remarkably successful political career under his belt, having served as uh, Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives and Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, followed by a couple years as the governor of Massachusetts. Nathaniel Banks had a record in support of abolition, but when he made a brief run for the Republican presidential nomination in 1860, uh, he was seen by the party's decision makers as being too moderate, and the campaign fizzled. Banks's mannerisms and his appearance, uh, his career in Republican politics, and his knack for networking kind of give the impression that, that he was a child of wealth and privilege. But that actually wasn't the case. Uh, although he was, he was uh, better educated than average, his formal schooling ended at the equivalent of about seventh grade, and Banks's family was not wealthy. He was, though, a sharp guy, and he had a knack for learning outside of school. Banks started out working in a textile mill, and he continued to do so until his political career began to take off driven by his public speaking endeavors. A writer who had the opportunity to observe Banks in action wrote, quote, General Banks was a fine representative of the higher order of Yankee. His personal graces were equaled by his energy, and his ability was considerable, end quote. When the war started, Banks received an appointment as a major general directly from President Lincoln, uh, Lincoln was probably looking to take advantage of Banks's political skill and his recruiting ability. 
uh, as he was uh, initially charged with maintaining Western Maryland's loyalty and then with Washington's defense. Banks's debut in actual fighting didn't come until spring of 1862, when he received a baptism by fire in the Shenandoah Valley, courtesy of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, uh, who also defeated Banks at Cedar Mountain in the lead-up to Second Bull Run. Less than a week before the Battle of Antietam, General Banks lost his gig in the Army of the Potomac and was sent back to New England. Although uh, disappointed with having lost his command, Banks pulled off a highly successful recruiting drive back home. Lincoln then sent Banks to New Orleans to relieve General Benjamin Butler, whose controversial actions were drawing overseas criticism. In that role, Banks was forced to stand between the, the radical Republicans in Washington, who wanted retribution on the civilian population for their support of the rebellion, and the military and political value of a measured approach that wouldn't stir up guerrilla fighting in formerly Confederate areas uh, now under Union control. Gideon Wells, Father Neptune, observed of Nathaniel Banks when the latter relieved Ben Butler as the military administrator and commanding officer in and around New Orleans at the end of 1862. Quote, Banks has some ready qualities for civil administration, and if not employed in the field or active military operations, will be likely to acquit himself respectably as a provisional or military governor. He has not the energy, power, ability of Butler, nor, though, of loose and fluctuating principles. Will he be so reckless and unscrupulous? End quote. Now, Secretary Wells must have been a pretty shrewd judge of people, because his assessments of both David Dixon Porter and Nathaniel Banks uh, ended up looking even more insightful in light of how both men's careers unfolded, subsequent to those Gideon Wells quote. After capturing Port Hudson in connection with the, the campaign against Vicksburg, General Nathaniel Banks' next significant assignment was the Red River Campaign. In all fairness, Nathaniel Banks was, was not in favor of the venture up the Red River. Banks instead wanted to lead a campaign to capture Mobile, Alabama, which was, you know, the way General Grant was leaning too. But the Lincoln administration saw the operation up the Red River and eventually into Texas as more important in the overall strategy for victory. Although the Red River expedition would end up tarnishing Banks's reputation and stifling his presidential ambitions, he nonetheless spent eight more years after the war representing Massachusetts in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, after losing an election, he focused on um, Massachusetts state politics until returning to the U.S. House 15 years later. And after just one additional term, Banks began uh, having significant health problems, and he did not seek re-election in 1890. Returning to Massachusetts, and um, after having spent a, a lifelong career in politics, Banks uh, had inadequate savings to support his family during retirement. Believe it or not, national politics was not originally uh, intended as a lucrative profession, and well into the 20th century, uh, a prominent politician, like Nathaniel Banks, might reach retirement uh, without having amassed a fortune. Ulysses Grant and, and Harry Truman are a couple more famous examples. The idea of getting into politics straight out of school and retiring a few decades later with tens of millions in assets 
is a uh, relatively recent tradition. But contemporary American politicians have adopted it enthusiastically. Upon learning of Nathaniel Banks' strained financial circumstances from Banks' wife, President Grover Cleveland appointed Banks to a U.S. marshal position in Massachusetts that came with enough pay to keep them um, out of the poorhouse. In 1894, after a run uh, in that marshal position, Banks once again ran into uh, health problems, ultimately leading to his death at 78 years old that same year. Now, 30 years earlier, entering uh, the spring 1864 Red River campaign uh, as a major general, Nathaniel Banks was one of the highest-ranking Union officers serving in the West, and he was the overall commander of the Department of the Gulf. For his operation against Shreveport, Banks had direct command of 20,000 Union soldiers, which he called the Army of the Gulf, not including the 10,000 that General Sherman deployed to join the campaign under uh, General A.J. Smith. Banks, like many other politicians, was prone to inflated estimates of his own abilities, and also to minimizing potential impediments to his designs. True to form, Banks was convinced, or maybe more realistically he had convinced himself, that the Confederates would know better than to oppose the overwhelming combined arms force that the Federals were bringing to bear against Shreveport. Before the campaign even started, General Banks confidently predicted that he and Porter would face no more than token Confederate resistance during their movement toward Shreveport and that the city would fall with relative ease. In fact, one of General Banks' first errors in the campaign was that he significantly underestimated the value that the Confederate commanders in the region were placing on uh, the defense of Shreveport. Those same Confederate commanders uh, who would be responsible for opposing the Union's Admiral Porter and General Banks present a contrasting example in the seasoned soldier versus political general dichotomy. Playing the part of the seasoned soldier on the Confederate side was General Edmund Kirby Smith, and in the role of the politically connected appointee with no real military experience, we have General Richard Taylor, more often called Dick Taylor. Edmund Kirby Smith, uh, who went by Ted, but we'll just call Kirby Smith, uh, was a 40-year-old West Point grad and a native of St. Augustine, Florida. Antebellum, Florida was a lightly populated backwater, with a total population estimated at only around 140,000. So Kirby Smith's status as probably the Confederacy's uh, most famous Floridian is notable. Uh, we may do an episode on, on Florida's role in the Civil War at some point. There were only a couple of relatively small battles there, but, uh, but Florida had a, a high rate of military participation, and it was important to uh, southern food production. And it was also critical to the Union blockade and Confederate blockade running. So General Kirby Smith, uh, who stood nearly six feet tall, and he wore a bushy black beard that kind of made him look like a pirate captain, was Florida's highest-ranking Civil War general. He was a Mexican War veteran, where he served under General and future President Zachary Taylor. In the Civil War, Kirby Smith was the commanding officer of President Taylor's son, Dick Taylor, the other Confederate with a starring role in this episode. Prior to the Civil War, Kirby Smith was a career officer in the Federal Army, 
He served straight through from his graduation from West Point uh, in 1845 till his resignation at the rank of major in April 1861. Kirby Smith started his Confederate career as a brigade commander under uh, Joseph Johnston and saw action at First Manassas, uh, where he sustained a serious wound at the very beginning of the battle. Smith was promoted to major general uh, after returning to duty, and he took over the Army of East Tennessee in February 1862. Kirby Smith turned in an okay performance in the Confederacy's first Kentucky campaign in the summer of 1862, after which he received the rank of lieutenant general. Then, in January 1863, Kirby Smith received the position that that he's usually associated with, taking command of the Confederacy's Trans-Mississippi Department. Now, you sometimes hear the Confederate Trans-Mississippi described as Kirby Smithdom, because uh, after logistics and communications with the East were all but severed when Vicksburg fell, uh, Kirby Smith played an outsized role in all military and administrative affairs west of the Mississippi. Shortly before the Red River Campaign uh, started, Kirby Smith received his final promotion to full general, which made him one of the Confederacy's six highest-ranking officers. Unfortunately for the South, though, Kirby Smith's track record in the Trans-Mississippi was defined by ineffective coordination and frequent disputes with fellow generals, notably Nathan Bedford Forrest and Dick Taylor. During the winter of 1864, the Confederates became fairly certain that the Union War Department was planning a major spring offensive into the Confederate Southwest. They disagreed, though, on exactly what the Union target was going to be. Shreveport seemed a good candidate, but so did Mobile Bay, or an operation on the Texas Gulf Coast designed to retake Galveston, Texas, uh, which had fallen into Union hands the previous October, only to be recaptured by the rebels on New Year's Day. Because overall Confederate command of the Trans-Mississippi rested with General Kirby Smith, it was ultimately his call as to where to focus defensive preparation. And Kirby Smith correctly bet on the Red River and on Shreveport, which meant Union General Banks was going to run into much stiffer opposition than he expected. Kirby Smith had been anticipating an eventual Union operation up the Red River for a while, and he had already made arrangements for a series of forts of varying sizes along the course of the river, starting at Fort DeRussey, on a bend of the Red River 20 miles or so from where it runs into the Mississippi uh, and extending up into Arkansas. The approach to Shreveport from the south was guarded by cliffs along the river at Grand Ecor, uh, where Smith directed his builders to place artillery, guarded by strong defensive works. And as you get closer to Shreveport's defenses, the fortifications grew more concentrated and uh, better prepared. A particularly clever trick that Kirby Smith had been, had been considering was to blow out a dam uh, or to construct a canal on the river so as to lower the water level further downriver by diverting some of the flow away from its normal path into the Mississippi. Kirby Smith had about 70,000 Confederate soldiers to work with overall, which sounds pretty good, uh, but it can be misleading since they were spread out through the entire region. Too much consolidation would mean leaving huge areas undefended uh, against Union encroachment. Too much dispersal would mean no one Confederate force had the strength to oppose a Union army. So while Kirby Smith was the commander of the, the whole Trans-Mississippi, 
The rebel general who would be on the scene to protect Shreveport was Lieutenant General Richard Taylor, who was responsible for the military district that included the western part of Louisiana. Dick Taylor, who was 35 years old when the war began, was either very confident or he had an overly high opinion of himself, depending on who you ask. He got along just fine with some fellow officers, but his ego rubbed others the wrong way and led to occasional squabbling with other officers, notably including Kirby Smith. One of the areas of contention was the Red River defenses that Smith had planned and that Taylor criticized. Richard Taylor was the son of Mexican War General turned U.S. President Zachary Taylor. The younger Taylor was a Yale graduate, a Louisiana planter with a large sugar plantation that housed about 150 slaves, part-time state-level office holder, and an anti-secessionist all the way up until Louisiana seceded. He was also Jefferson Davis's brother-in-law. Taylor's sister, Jefferson Davis's first wife, died shortly after the wedding, but Taylor and Davis remained close. What Taylor was not, uh, at least not before 1861, was a soldier or a trained military officer. Even so, and despite Taylor's on-the-record opposition to secession, General Braxton Bragg recruited Richard Taylor to serve on Bragg's staff at the start of the war, initially in a civilian role. Now, given his uh, political history and his lack of actual military experience, you could fairly characterize Dick Taylor as a political general. However, uh, in that regard, Taylor stands out as an exception to the usual rule that political generals are, are a liability that the professionals have to make up for in the field. Taylor was a much more competent commander than most political generals, earning praise from even Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, who never hesitated to criticize incompetence. Taylor's success was partly due to his greater-than-average familiarity with military matters. As a young man, he spent time on campaign in Mexico, shadowing his father uh, during General Zachary Taylor's successful operation there. And he was also an avid student of military history and strategy, and in general, uh, an amateur scholar with uh, well-rounded interests. Fellow Confederate General Henry Heth, a West Pointer from near Richmond, gave a glowing assessment of Taylor's intellect, in his memoirs, quote, General Taylor was one of the most accomplished men I ever met. He had been a great reader and remembered what he read, thoroughly posted in politics, science, art, finance, and the current literature of the day, and was the most charming raconteur I ever encountered. Heth means that Taylor was an engaging storyteller. Uh, Richard Taylor's combat career started as a regimental colonel commanding Louisiana volunteers at First Manassas. After a promotion to brigadier, Taylor served under Stonewall Jackson, in opposition to Union General Nathaniel Banks, in the famed Valley Campaign. Taylor's Louisiana volunteers, who included the notoriously raucous Louisiana Tigers, earned a reputation as a reliable, fierce brigade during their tenure in the Valley. On Stonewall Jackson's recommendation, Dick Taylor received the rank of Major General during the summer of 1862. The promotion caused a, a little bit of controversy in the Confederate military because Jefferson Davis had passed over several senior officers to promote Taylor. The Taylors and Davises were related by marriage, after all, so accusations of uh, nepotism were thrown around in Richmond. Unsurprisingly, Davis insisted that Taylor's demonstrated talent and Jackson's endorsement were the determining factors. 
After the promotion, Taylor was sent back home to Louisiana to focus on recruitment and defense of the western part of the state. Most importantly, the waterways that included the Red River. Taylor performed well in his new command, but he usually found himself outmanned and outgunned uh, as he contributed to unsuccessful attempts to defend Fort Hudson and Vicksburg and to recapture New Orleans. Author Samuel Mitchum offers this description of General Dick Taylor in his Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, quote, Dick Taylor stood five feet eight and a half inches tall and had dark hazel eyes, a deep tan complexion, and a thick black beard. He smoked, drank, chewed tobacco. Uh, as an aside, uh, smoking and chewing tobacco takes uh, serious commitment. Back to Mitchum. And he enjoyed fine food and wine. He grew as fat as a Dutchman, to use a 19th century expression, but lost his excess weight during the war via active campaigning. He was highly cultured, possessed a magnetic personality, and had an aristocratic air. He was very well read, had a fine memory, could quote long passages from literature or the Bible, and was both an original thinker and a man prepared to take risks. End quote. Uh, Mitchum also notes that Taylor suffered from uh, lifelong health problems and had chronic rheumatoid arthritis. A Texas soldier who served under Dick Taylor uh, described the general's appearance like this, quote, Major General Dick Taylor is of middle stature, with a compact, well-knit frame. His face is rectangular, but almost bronze. He has a glorious pair of dark eyes that scintillate beneath his heavy brows and dark hair. A heavy, curved mustache covers his well-formed mouth. Such is his appearance, and his fighting qualities are in accordance. End quote. Now, there's probably a joke or two we could make about uh, you know the wording of that description, but... Uh, but uh, I'm going to leave it alone and let listeners come up with their own. Uh, Dick Taylor had been an immensely wealthy man before the war, but the war did away with all that. With his plantation destroyed, Taylor filed bankruptcy and not long after left the country altogether. A wealthy New York lawyer and businessman named Samuel Barlow hired Taylor to act as Barlow's business representative in Europe, and Taylor would work with and for Barlow on and off the rest of his life. When Dick Taylor died young in 1879, just 53 years old, he was in New York visiting Barlow, with whom he had become good friends. The same year that he died, Taylor published a Civil War memoir called Destruction and Reconstruction, Personal Experiences of the Late War, which he had penned while living uh, with his daughter in Winchester, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. Taylor's memoir is often mentioned along with U.S. Grants, in discussions of the, the best-written Civil War memoirs. Leading into the Red River Campaign, Richard Taylor had about 8,800 rebel soldiers under his command, including infantry brigades under Generals Alfred Mouton and John Walker, and cavalry under General Thomas Green. Taylor had already earned a reputation as a strict disciplinarian, and he had a knack for inspiring his men to fight hard. The Union plan for the Red River Campaign was for Banks's principal army of about 20,000 men to march against Shreveport from the southeast. They'd set off from the New Orleans area, marching east and then north, where they would unite with Admiral Porter's freshwater fleet at Alexandria in central Louisiana. Porter would be arriving in Alexandria from the east after moving up the winding Red River with the gunboats and transport ships carrying the 10,000-soldier protective force 
which had been deployed from Vicksburg and was under the command of Brigadier Andrew Jackson Smith, A.J. Smith. From Alexandria, the Union Army's portion of the combined arms would travel northwest along the course of the Red River, marching just west of the river, while the naval force, under Admiral Porter, shadowed the Army's right flank as it steamed up the river toward Shreveport. The plan was to put Shreveport in a vice, with General Banks's and Admiral Porter's combined arms hitting the city from the south, while a secondary Union force approached from the north. That secondary force consisted of a cavalry-heavy contingent numbering about 8,000 to 10,000 men under General Frederick Steele. Steele and his men would set out from the Arkansas capital city of Little Rock, which Union forces commanded by General Steele had captured in September 1863. Then, after they took Shreveport, Steele's men would be responsible for the city's occupation. Steele was going to be traveling through areas that were still controlled by the rebels, so he had discretion to either attack Shreveport directly from the north or to navigate through or around Bayou area east of the river and angle the attack from the east, whichever direction would allow for the least resistance and delay. Given the different moving parts, communication and coordination would be a major challenge for the operation. Once they set off, Banks and Steele had no lines of communication, and the same was true for Banks and Porter until their rendezvous at Alexandria. Everybody had to travel a couple hundred miles in less than ideal conditions, so keeping the timing in sync is going to be tough. Further adding to the difficulty, the federal officers had only limited knowledge of the geography and the topography that they were dealing with. What maps they had access to had limited detail, and the information was often inaccurate. There was also a potential for problems arising from the operation's politics. Banks is mostly responsible for coming up with the operational plan, and he was the face of the campaign. But he didn't have authority over Porter, and though he technically outranked A.J. Smith, Washington hadn't specifically put Banks in charge. So you have a campaign involving two major generals, Banks and Steele, a brigadier general, A.J. Smith, and a rear admiral, Porter, and they all have more or less independent commands. The Federal Red River Campaign formally began on March 10, 1864, when the first Union troops began marching up from the south of New Orleans, and most of the Army of the Gulf set out on the 12th. Before Admiral Porter's freshwater flotilla could get very far upriver, an ironclad called the Eastport got itself stuck in sand near the mouth of the river. Yankee soldiers dislodged the Eastport after a little delay, and the trip upriver began in earnest. The first military target of the campaign would be Fort DeRussy, a rebel military installation about 20 miles or so from the mouth of the Red River. The fort was designed specifically to resist Union ironclads. Much of it was dug into the ground, allowing the earth to provide natural protection, and its key offensive asset was an artillery emplacement shielded by iron plating to resist bombardment from the river. Now, my understanding is that there are or have been uh, U.S. Army sites called Fort Deracy or Fort Deracy, uh, spelled the same but pronounced differently, in Washington, D.C. and in Hawaii. Now, we're obviously talking about the Confederate fort in Louisiana. While Porter's gunboats navigated a large, curvy semicircle, uh, up the windy Red River to reach the fort, General A.J. Smith, commanding the experienced bluecoats that General Sherman had assigned to the flotilla, took the more direct route, marching by land during the night to attack the fort from behind. 
To clarify, if the fort's front is the side facing the river, uh, A.J. Smith's men were approaching from the back. Dick Taylor had assigned Major General John Walker to protect Fort DeRussey. Walker had a division of Texans under his command. At full strength, the Texans may have been able to oppose the 8,000-man or so force that A.J. Smith had brought against the fort. Walker's division, though, was far from full strength, and Smith's men's night march had taken them by surprise. Walker judged that he couldn't hold the fort, and so he withdrew most of his Confederates north, planning to consolidate with other rebels in the region. As a result, when the Yankees assaulted Fort DeRussey, they found it defended by only around 300 men. A.J. Smith's men captured the fort without much difficulty, capturing several valuable Confederate artillery pieces in the process and notching an important first victory for the campaign. Now, this was a good start for the Federals. Fort DeRussey was fitted specifically to resist ironclads, but by moving against it by land and river, Admiral Porter and General A.J. Smith neutralized the fort's advantages. Perhaps more importantly, the Union operation's key liability was not present at Fort DeRussey, as he would not be joining with Porter and Smith until the next stop at Alexandria. The Louisiana town of Alexandria was about 30 miles further up the winding path of the river. This time, the flotilla's army bodyguard, the uh, 10,000 men under A.J. Smith, traveled by transport ship. Admiral Porter dispatched a single ironclad to travel ahead of the fleet, hopefully taking the town by surprise and eliminating any Confederate naval presence before it could depart. The rebels, though, anticipated the arrival of Porter and his ironclads. Rebel General Dick Taylor judged that an attempt to hold Alexandria would be too costly, and so the rebels had already vacated Alexandria by the time the Yankee ironclad showed up. So far, with the success at Fort DeRussey and Alexandria, the Yankees are two for two on military targets. Looking good. And General Nathaniel Banks was present for neither. Now, you may recall that Alexandria was the chosen rendezvous point where Admiral Porter and General A.J. Smith were supposed to unite with General Banks. Porter and Smith had arrived on the appointed date of March 20th, but Banks was nowhere to be found. So they waited for him. And they continued to wait and waited a couple more days. Banks's soldiers, under the command of General William Franklin, started making their way into Alexandria on March 25th, but without General Banks. When Banks at last made a tardy appearance in Alexandria, he did so by steamboat, accompanied by cotton purchasers rather than Union soldiers. The coordinated campaign plan relied on cooperation between the commanding officers. To pull it off, they needed to be able to trust and depend on each other. Unfortunately, there was instead a great deal of friction, and it really started to blossom during that rendezvous in Alexandria. You see, some of General Nathaniel Banks's political supporters back in New England, the ones with the big bankrolls that could support or run for the presidency, well, they were in the textile business. During the Civil War, New England textile mills were in serious need of cotton. Without raw materials, the mills couldn't produce the finished fabric, which means the mill owners were losing money. And some of those same textile mill owners saw Banks' campaign into the heart of Louisiana as a fortuitous business opportunity. They asked, and General Banks agreed, to send along some purchasers to pick up whatever cotton could be had during the campaign. Being a business-minded man, Banks thought it sounded like a capital idea. There's a problem, though. 
the tough Western veterans that Sherman had assigned to accompany Porter under the command of A.J. Smith hadn't realized that they were joining in a business venture. Hard-nosed federal soldiers took issue with the cotton purchasers' presence on the campaign. The men were soldiers, and this was war. The suggestion that the mission's purpose was plunder, or that the soldiers were there as a bodyguard for New England businessmen, was not well received, and the men didn't hesitate to voice their displeasure. Porter's cotton-picking grievance with General Banks wasn't as much about picking up cotton during the trip. Admiral Porter was actually planning to do some cotton-picking himself, and he had even brought extra boats for the purpose. No, Porter's gripe had to do with the delay that Banks had caused. This wasn't Admiral Porter's first rodeo, and he knew that even one or two days' delay can be the difference between success and failure. The rebels were already aware that the combined U.S. Army and Navy force was coming. They had, after all, already captured the first fort in the Red River's defenses. And Union General Nathaniel Banks had just generously given Confederate General Dick Taylor an extra week to prepare for the Yankees' arrival. Okay, now that we've set the stage and introduced the players, this is where we're going to end part one of our look at the Red River campaign. Uh, This was originally going to be a a single episode, but it it just got to be too long. Not to brag or nothing, but I got like 60 pages of notes. Hopefully, we didn't leave too much of a cliffhanger, and the good part is that most of the work for part two is finished. Uh, We'll start to really dig into the details of what happened on the ground, how former Speaker of the House Nathaniel Banks screwed up, and why Dick Taylor spent the rest of his life ticked off at Kirby Smith. And we'll also get to answer the question that has been on everyone's minds. How did a French prince end up as a high-ranking general in the Confederate Army? All right, I, I know we haven't discussed Prince Camille yet, but, but we will next time, and it's a good story. Uh, before signing off, I want to extend a big thanks to everyone who takes the time to listen to this podcast. I'm well aware that you have many choices in podcasts, since I listen to quite a few myself. And it's a privilege to know that there are good folks out there who choose to listen to this one. Until part two, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed part one of our look at the Red River campaign. jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.